Well, I don't know what uh, things are like for you lately. I had an experience last week that kind of typifies the climate we're in right now, the culture we're in right now. I'm driving uh, peacefully along the road, and I hear a car horn in the lane next to me. I don't think much of it. I hear it again and realize they're trying to get my attention. I look over, and a gesture is being made to me with multiple times and great uh, ferocity, kind of this ferocious way. And it was saying number one, but not the way you want to say number one. So just someone seemed quite upset. And, you know, everybody's so angry right now. I'm kind of used to it. Like, oh, it's another day. Someone's ticked. Don't even know why. I thought I'd be friendly back. And I looked up at the person's face and realized they're smiling at me saying they love me. And it's a friend of mine who's just being funny. He wasn't actually mad. He was thinking it was humorous. It took me a while to realize it. And, and it occurred to me it was so foreign because most anywhere I go, I encounter someone who's mad. That in general, what we're living in right now, you might even say is its own age of outrage, that we get mad about everything, things as simple as a mask, to what people choose to do from day to day, to where we go, to where we don't go, to what we think, to what we don't think, to what we post, to what people like that's posted, to what people respond to that's posted. You name it, and people are angry. In fact, if I were to define a superhero by the day that we're living in, it would clearly be the Hulk. I mean, we just live in a climate. I remember this from not too many movies ago. One of the more recent ones, they ask Banner, hey, what is it? How do you deal with this? And he said, I realized I'm always angry. I mean, just consider it for a minute. We're living in the homes that we live in, the apartments we live in, the places we live in, much more in close proximity to one another. And all of that togetherness creates tension and we get into conflict more and there's breakdown in relationship and there's struggle and there's frustration. We go online and it intensifies tenfold. We look at the climate we're living in and the political life and it increases. We go anywhere we go and there's just this climate of anger and frustration. And make no mistake, if you say the wrong thing, our friendship is over. I say that because you asked for us to talk about forgiveness. And I know we're all living in tension. You may have just asked for it because of all sorts of things going on in your own life. But I also know that we're living in a culture where forgiveness is the furthest thing from our minds. And it's crazy because the church, we're supposed to understand this. We're built around forgiveness. I mean, we, we even as our mission say that we're radically loving and growing together in Christ. We have lost a sense of radical love are people that are both radically forgiven and radically forgive. In other words, it's a muscle, it's a skill, it's a facet of life you and I are supposed to be good at. Now, if I'm completely honest... I know a lot about forgiveness theologically. I can explain a lot from the scriptures. That doesn't always translate to how I live. And I've come to realize even more under all of this pressure that I know much less than I thought I did about forgiveness. You know, last week I talked about anxiety and I felt like that's something I've really addressed and dealt with and could speak to it from a position of understanding. I'm kind of with you today going, I'm in a position of learning on my own, trying to better understand what's it really mean for me to walk in this. So as I was preparing, one of the things 
that I thought, I need to go back and look at people who really understand this well. I need to look at the scriptures and center there, but I want to see people who've gone before me that really get this. And one of the places I went to in my own memory growing up, I remember both hearing this person talk and reading their story, a woman named Corey Tenboom. Now, many of you might not know who she is. You're probably, many are too young to know, but she is a woman, her family lived in the Netherlands, and she grew up uh, in the 30s and 40s, and when World War II came and the Nazis invaded their country, they began to take out the Jewish people. She grew up in a Christian Reformed family in the Dutch climate of this, and they made a deep commitment to really protecting and hiding these people that were being persecuted and ultimately killed. Her family actually called their home the hiding place, and she even writes a book about their story and what they did. I mean, fascinating pieces, even going and having to get food quantities and food cards from others so they could get enough for the people they were hiding in their place. They would ultimately be discovered, and she and her family would be separated through various concentration camps, many of whom would die. She and her sister would spend long, long years in one of these camps, and her sister would ultimately die only 15 days before Corey would be released. What always amazed me about her story is how she just understood forgiveness differently in all the suffering she'd gone through. And in fact, this is one statement she made about it that I find is kind of an anchor for me as I'm asking God, what does it mean for us? She said this, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It is a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. She said this not simply as an idea, but as a life from what she had lived in would later even encounter several of those who treated her the worst and had opportunity face-to-face to even tell them she forgave them. Just powerful statements. And we know intuitively how important this is, but we also, if we admit, and I were to go around person-to-person, home-to-home, I think we could admit it is not easy to do. And where I want to go today is simply to the Scriptures to understand this. Now, make no mistake, as Christians, which many of us are, that's what we center our lives around. Forgiveness is central to the Christian life. We simply say it this way, that we understand you and I commit sin. We commit offenses that are not not payable. We can't pay enough for them to each other, to others, and to God himself. That we understand that God himself came in the flesh in Jesus, that Jesus lived and actually suffers and dies to pay for our sin in order to forgive us, and then out of resurrection, offer us new life. That's what we understand theologically. But what's that look like in day-to-day life? I want to take us to a passage, just a couple of simple verses that a man named Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Paul is one of our earliest leaders, and he understood how central this was to the life of the church, to the culture of the church. And so I just want to give you a few simple verses that we're going to look at and seek to mine into what might God say to us today from these simple words to better become people of radical forgiveness, both receiving it and giving it. Paul writes these words specifically. Therefore, as God's chosen people, as his family, as his kids, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive what it, one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Now, we're going to get into this more deeply, but let me say this to begin with and maybe just to culminate for us. To truly understand forgiveness, we need to understand how we're forgiven. We need to forgive, it says, as the Lord forgave you. His one-time act is a picture and a pathway for ongoing how we live. Now, I want to just give us a few thoughts before I, I jump into kind of an outside piece, and then we look very specifically at forgiveness. Jesus talks about this regularly through his life. He gives teaching after teaching, kind of helping people realize you don't realize how important this is, how central forgiveness is. In fact, he even says after he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he says, your father will forgive you if you forgive others. There's this condition even given to it. But he tells stories to remind people of how important this is. One of which he tells a story of someone who's been forgiven a great debt and someone who's been given a very little debt. And he says, which do you think loves more? He says this to these religious leaders. And they say, well, obviously, the one who's forgiven more. And he says, those who've been forgiven much love much. Now, he said this because these religious people were looking at others with disdain, like they're bad and we're good. And make no mistake, he wasn't actually saying you're good and don't need it. He was saying you just don't see it. We don't really see how deep the need is. By the way, that's a facet we'll come back to. There's another picture he gives that really relates to this too in the tide of forgiveness. He tells a story of a man who has a huge debt he could never repay. And the king come back, comes back to collect the debt and the man says, I can never repay it, have mercy on me. And the king says, I forgive the debt. I will release you from it. And that man, instead of gratitude, goes back to someone who owes him a little bit and says, you pay it all up and I'll take you down if you don't. When the king sees it, he throws the man back in jail because he didn't extend what was given to him. I mean, we can understand those things theologically, but if you're anything like me, you go, that's a nice truth. How do I actually walk in this? How do I actually live in it? And that's what I hope to help us with, to give us a few handles to grab onto in what I think is a beautiful truth and yet a really hard truth in a climate of anger and hostility and unforgiveness like we've never seen, at least in my lifetime. Let me take you back through just the first part of this because it sets the stage around us. He is talking to these early Christians, to this church, about how they're to be to one another. When he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, when he says, clothe yourselves, he's not saying to each of you individually do this, that yourselves is plural, in other words, what he's saying is, I want you as a community to act and live in a different way, if you will, to create a culture, a way of living that's different. And then he describes it. You know what you're to be like? You're to be people with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That's why I like to call it a culture, because I think it's a unique culture that Paul's talking about creating in the church. We would call it a culture of the kingdom. Now, I didn't get into this, but a few verses earlier, he talks about a comparison to what our earthly nature is like, what I would call a culture of how we live normally. Now, in case you don't think about what culture means, it's fascinating. Culture itself actually comes, we get our English word from the French word, and this French word specifically relates to agriculture. 
In fact, it literally means that you create a certain kind of soil, and in that kind of soil, the seed grows. In other words, a specific soil grows a specific seed. Culture, the soil, creates a climate for something to grow in. Paul is comparing that in this passage. So I want you to consider this. What's the culture of our earthly nature? And this is what he says earlier in the passage. It's a culture of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy, abusive language and lying to each other. Now, just curious, does this sound like how we're living today? Because it sure does to me. Do you know we've come up with our own phrase for it? It's called a cancel culture. We usually attribute it to other people and not to ourselves, but we all do it, and it's this. If you do something, and, and this is really the beginning of it, is we pretend we accept everyone. Oh, we love everybody. But if you do anything to violate what I value and accept, I cancel what you've done in the past, what you're doing in the present, and what you'll do in the future. In other words, you are unacceptable to me. That's how we're living right now. It was crazy. I'm reading this. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the culture we're in right now. This is the climate we live in. And I wish it weren't true, but guess what? In the church, we're the same way as the people around us. We break relationship for our own reasons, but we follow the same pattern. Think about this in terms of what Paul compares it to then. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Do you realize compassion for me is so important in these days because compassion simply says, I want to understand the place you're coming from. I want to resonate and realize why and where your perspective is. Do you think we do that today? No. In fact, what we do is we tend to put on to people all the horrible reasons they think and act the way they do with no understanding and compassion. And we justify it. They're bad they're messed up, they're either deceived at its least, and they're evil at their worst. That's how we view other people. We are not creating a climate of compassion. Kindness is literally being good to each other. We did this all over the summer. We talked about blessing other people. Kindness is the posture of blessing. Humility is the posture that sees people with dignity. I look at you, and no matter what you say or think or do, I see you through the lens of image-bearing of God. It doesn't mean you're not broken. It doesn't mean you don't have problems. But I see your intrinsic value because you're made in his likeness the same way I am. And I'm not greater than you. Can you get a picture for a culture like that, how it shifts how we treat each other? How different it is? Humility, gentleness, patience. These are beautiful words. Now, I want to say this about it because... I'm most concerned about this for the church right now. Even though we haven't even gotten to forgiveness, we need to be building this kind of culture. In recent weeks, I've had the opportunity to be multiple times with pastors in our own community, surrounding areas. I've been with pastors in our region, meaning the Midwest, and I've been with some pastors in groups all over the states. We've had a few that are, are nationwide. And when we talk, I can't say every single one, but almost every pastor sees the same thing. So I want to tell you something, and I'm telling you this, I believe prophetically. I believe it's true. If you don't, and you don't have to, you still need to extend grace to me because your temptation is going to be, I'm canceling him right now. But I'm very concerned about this, and I want to address it with you. And, and it's simply this. 
the church, Christians, are to be disciples of Jesus. What that means is we walk in his footsteps, and we don't simply learn from him. We walk like him. We become like him. We become people of compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. All these things we become like him because we're his followers. This is what's become real to me, and, and I hate it, but it's true in general. I'm not accusing any individual, but this is true in general of the church in our area. We have become disciples of our politic. You and I have become more concerned with the leaders in front of us and our fears that life needs to go with them the way they want and lost sight of what it means to be followers of Jesus. We've put the two together. And I don't know how to say it other than if you look at this list, I don't care which political party you follow or like, that's true of them. And please don't tell me otherwise. I've just seen it. And so part of me aches because I want to extract from us very simply that we're going to cultivate forgiveness. Our culture needs to be a culture of the kingdom. And make no mistake, I know you're all going to have your own political views. I have no interest in trying to corral those. But I also know November is not going to change the world. It is not where your hope is. And if November creates whichever party you wishes it in, that same culture is going to continue of anger and rage and really slander and horrible way we treat each other. It's not gonna get better from a politic. And in case you don't know, the church thrives when we're not in power, by the way. You go through any part of history, our best days are always when we're separate and we're peculiar and we're weird. And by the way, we're weird. And it's awesome. And let me say it to you another way. What do you think's gonna change the world? This is. A culture of Jesus is going to change the world. A church that says we're going to be compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient, that will begin to create a climate where forgiveness, radical forgiveness occurs. And before we talked about it, I didn't feel like I could run past the need for us to begin to let go of our hope in the wrong place and attending to the wrong place. Now, I actually want to offer a very simple strategy to move us in this direction. It's very, as we're leading up to the election, because I know everybody's at the forefront with this, starting Friday would be 40 days up to November 3. We're going to have 40 days of prayer and fasting. You will choose when you fast, but we want to invite you to participate. All you have to do is text to this number the word 40, and each morning we'll send you a verse, just a verse to kind of reflect on and pray through that will move us and move our area in the way of Jesus. That's all we're going to do is pray. All I'm asking. Now, I'll invite you to something else that I think might help you to create the culture we want. This is something at least I'm going to do and I've had to do. So about a year ago, when we hit Lent, not this season, but last winter, I realized I had a lot of angst over seeing things on social media, particularly on Facebook. And I went off for Lent. And I tried to go on one day after, and I went off and have never gone back. And this is what I figured out. I figured out that, particularly with Facebook, but I think this is true of much media, people say things that they're not ready for everyone to hear. Like, we get to read your internal monologue when you post. And I've realized that I love you better when I don't know your internal monologue. I don't mean that poorly. I just don't need to hear all of this. It's not helpful to me. And then I don't do things like, not only do I read what you say, I read who likes it, I read what they comment, and guess what? I tell a whole story to myself about you and everyone else, and you do the same thing to me, and we do it to each other. 
And make no mistake, the political climate is enhancing this. Our news sources, all the things we're pouring into are pouring that same kind of vitriol back. What do you think might happen instead of worrying about how the election goes? You and I said for the 40 days leading up, we're not going to look at any of it. We're just going to pray, and we're going to become people who are compassionate and kind and patient and gentle. Guess what? That's what's going to change the world, not Washington, not which party's in charge, not who's on the bench, none of that. The church will by becoming radically forgiving people. And this is, we haven't even gotten to forgiveness. I mean, this is like a bonus. You got two messages for the price of one. Some of you, you're like, I'm done. I cancel you today. I hope not. But I'm going to say what I think the Lord tells us to say no matter what. Man, we have got to move in a different direction and disentangle ourselves from the wrong culture. We want outcomes, but we don't realize the process violates the very outcome we want. And we're saying it doesn't matter how to get there as long as we get there. That is not the way of Jesus. How you get there is the outcome we want. We want people that are clothed with compassion and kindness and gentleness, patience. Now we get to the meat. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's this interweaving that we have to understand You and I need to become more deeply understanding of just how much Jesus loves us to forgive us. We need to understand how we're forgiven, and then we need to understand how we actually forgive. That's what God's inviting us to. And I just want to give us a simple thought that I think will help at both ends. In Philippians, Paul says it this way, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, his suffering and his death produces resurrection. You and I follow that pattern. Now, what I want to focus on as it relates to forgiveness is suffering. And I'll, I'll be vulnerable and honest in my own life, and I think, it, I think it will translate to you. When I hurt someone and I have to seek forgiveness, I want it to come quickly. I don't want to deal with what the pain is like because... I tend to feel bad about myself, and I want them to make me feel better. So it doesn't matter whether it's a great sin or a small sin, especially if they're a Christian, what do you get to say? You have to forgive me. It's your problem. I mean, isn't that nice? It lets you right off the hook. It's not good theology, but it lets you off the hook. What I've realized is I want relief from feeling badly about myself. That's not understanding forgiveness. That's protecting myself from its consequence. What shifts and what I'm trying to shift on is I want to understand the pain and suffering I cause through my sin. I know it causes God pain. I know it causes the person I harm pain. And for me, it's a new journey to say, help me understand the pain this has caused. I let you down. What pain did that cause? I spoke poorly about you. What pain did that cause? I blew up at you and it was scary what was that like for you? We, we find pain we cause in lots of areas. I don't know if you do this. It's, it's like I said, it's the West Michigan thing. We tend to talk nicely to people's face. It's kindness, but then we talk about them other places. That's fake forgiveness. It's, it's a fake kindness. Now imagine I speak poorly of the person that either I hurt or am hurt by. 
to someone else, guess what they wonder? Am I speaking poorly about them to someone else? I've now harmed two people along the way. I want to ache over the pain I cause and the suffering I cause, not ache over how it makes me feel bad about myself and make me feel better. See, I think we know Jesus' forgiveness more when we allow ourselves to move into the suffering and pain we cause and say, God, you actually love me in that suffering and pain. It's not like Jesus looks and goes, I can't believe you did that. He looks and goes, my heart is broken and I love you in that and I die for you in that. And the people we hurt, we say, I want to understand the pain it caused, not please make me feel better and don't bring it up again. That's a different way to explore how we're forgiven. I hope that makes sense. I'm wanting us to engage in it to allow ourselves to experience and understand the pain we cause and find Jesus' forgiveness in it. Now, the other side of this is understanding that there's suffering when we experience the pain of the hurts from another. In other words, you can't just say, I forgive you. Most of us are taught this in the church. If they do something wrong, you say, I forgive you, and magically all the pain washes away and you never have to experience it. That, I don't know about you, but I have not seen it come about that way. Now, I'm not saying it never does, but the greater the pain or the more significantly or ongoing it happens the harder it is to do something like that. I'm sure some of you are thinking, wait, you can't tell me to forgive someone when I've suffered. It's, you know, Jesus said 70 times seven, but it's been 583 times. We we passed the 490 limit. Why would I keep going through this? I don't want to forgive them because they're going to do it again. Why in the world would I? I'm not inviting you to trust them. I'm inviting you to suffer. And in that suffering, allow Jesus to meet you to help you forgive them. You cannot deny the pain. You have to go into it. It's funny. We we hear this verse participating in sufferings, and we only think of, oh, well, if it's kind of a, a, a very specific suffering related to some kind of Christian thing because they, they know I'm a Christian, they're coming after me, and I don't have this. It's every kind of suffering Jesus is talking about. And guess what one of them is? The suffering of pain that's given from people we love. I go, there's something for us in learning how to step into this and actually sit in the pain of it and suffer and that when we suffer, Jesus meets us to help us forgive. It helps me to consider people who've done this well and to learn from them. So I want to give you one more picture of this. Nelson Mandela, widely considered a follower of Jesus, went through horrible things in South Africa with being imprisoned and living in a miserable situation. And he tells a story of when he's freed and the revelation he has of understanding forgiveness in a very unique way. He says it like this. As I walked out of the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. That that was profound for me. It's funny. I don't think I live in a place of over, kind of it's right there at my place of bitterness and forgiveness. This is how I live in it. I'll be fine and forgiving as long as the person's really sorry and apologetic, which, by the way, is a condition the Bible never gives. <laughs> we just want it to feel good. Okay, they were regretting. That's good. I also can be forgiving until other things are brought up that are similar. So if I'm in a, a good, a strong relationship and they start to bring up their list of things they're upset with me about, I will re-invite my past unforgiven things and rebring them to them. Should I do that? No. 
means I haven't really let go. I don't wear them as a shackle like I'm always angry, but they're always right in the back of my mind, ready to bring in when I need them. So I don't really have to deal with my own unforgiveness of them. And I also don't have to deal with their list for me to enter into. I think there's suffering that we have to do. I think Mandela's story is one that he sat in prison literally physically suffering for the hurt and pain others had caused. And in that place, in sitting in the suffering, somehow God met him and helped him let go. I think God needs to help us let go. And make no mistake, the culture we're living in right now does not anything to help us. It is more than happy to tell us of why we shouldn't forgive, why we're right, and why they're just plain old bad and unredeemable. But that's not the church. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. Oh, bear with each other. Forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Participate in the suffering of Jesus. Asking others, how have I caused your suffering? How do I understand that and ache with you in it? And how does God forgive me in it? And how do you? And understanding your own pain when others bring harm to you. How do I respond and live in this differently? It's something I just haven't been able to get away from. Forgiveness enters into suffering. You cannot simply make it a willful decision that avoids the cost and the difficulty. We look at Jesus' life. He suffers on the cross. He suffers and carries things for us. And he says it's the way of him. We follow him. We will understand his suffering for ours and the suffering of others. And we will suffer in order to forgive. When you go home today, I guarantee it won't take long for you to be reminded of the rage in our culture right now this kind of age of outrage. And I want you to hear the whisper of God. Build a culture of forgiveness. Build a climate of kindness and compassion. Live differently. That's what's gonna change the world. Not fighting for power, not arguing who's right, not liking and posting and hating and drawing lines, but loving differently. Let me pray for us. Lord, I confess there is not a thing that I can say that will convince people to change or move. But I am asking your spirit to breathe on us now. God, where we've believed lies that the outcome we need matters more than the way we live. God, would you disentangle us from a culture that cancels, from a culture that says win-lose, from a culture that says right and wrong, hate and rage. God, from a culture that's just brutal to one another. And will you help us, Lord, to really clothe ourselves as a community of faith. God, help us to clothe ourselves with kindness and compassion and gentleness and patience and humility. Lord, help us to learn what it means to, to understand your suffering and the suffering of those we hurt. And Lord, help us to walk in suffering with you for those that harm us. Teach us, Lord, how to forgive one another and how to build a radically loving community of forgiveness and love.
pray this in your name. Amen.